college and seminary this coming week. Um, it's going to be a busy one. It's move-in day tomorrow. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, orientation, which is always a fun time. And then classes begin on, on Thursday. Uh, I'm excited about it. We're excited about it. I mean, for the most part, we were online this past year, but it's all back on campus starting this week with numerous regulations, limitations, and restrictions in place, but at least live bodies on campus. So it's going to be great uh, to be back and have the activity and the interaction with the students. But I do ask you to be praying for us that uh, the Lord would continue to bless us and use us, as we like to say, in equipping men and women for service from coast to coast to coast and, and around the world. So please be in prayer for us at Heritage College and Seminary. So I'm with you today. I'm with you, Lord willing, next Sunday. And then I miss a Sunday and then back for the last Sunday in September. And I thought what we would do for these three Sundays is look together at a few verses from Paul's epistle to the Galatians. So you can turn with me, please, to Galatians chapter 1. And as you are doing so, I would like to share with you a little story I read some years ago. Here it is. On Monday, Alice bought a parrot. It didn't talk. So the next day, she returned to the pet store. He needs a ladder, she was told. And so she bought a ladder. But another day passed, and the parrot still did not say a word. How about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing. The next day, a mirror. The next day, a miniature plastic tree. The next day, a shiny parrot toy. On Saturday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened. She had the parrot cage in her hand and tears filling her eyes. Her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the store owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobs right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any food at that pet store? <laughs> Where could I possibly be going with that? Here's where I'm going with it. When anything but the gospel, when anything but the gospel occupies the center in our lives, we will be like Alice's parrot, starving in a cage crowded with pretty toys. The question for you and the question for me is this. Is the gospel the main thing in our lives? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I don't anyone, want anyone to belt out an answer. But I do want each of us to answer it sincerely in the presence of the Lord. What is the main thing in your life? What is the main thing in my life? What do you dream about? What defines you? What are your aims, goals, desires, longings, ambitions? 
How do you respond in the difficult times? How do you handle opposition? How do you cope with conflict? How do you cope with grief, loss? How do you handle temptation? Is the gospel the main thing in our lives? That is the question I want us to answer this day in the presence of the Lord, and I want us to answer it by listening carefully to what the Apostle Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 1, the first five verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It was the year 45 A.D., thereabouts, 45 A.D. And Paul and Barnabas, they depart from the city of Antioch in Syria. And they embark essentially on what is their first missionary journey. And they catch a boat to the island of Cyprus. And they traverse the island on foot, preaching the gospel to whomever will listen. They arrive at the other side of the island, catch another boat, and make way for the southern shore of what was known in that day as Asia Minor. We know it today as Turkey. And inland they went on foot to the cities of Antioch. Not Antioch in Syria, but this is a different Antioch. The city of Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and the two of them are preaching the gospel, and people are saved, and churches are established. They return home to Antioch in Syria, and that geographical region where they had planted those churches is known to us as Galatia. On their second missionary journey, Paul visits again those churches which he had established in Galatia. On his third missionary journey, he again passes through that region. And somewhere during that second, third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia. He's not impressed. That's an understatement. He has a bit of a bee in his bonnet, doesn't he? And he begins right off saying, I am completely astonished. There is no other word for it. I, I, I could search for other terms to describe how I feel about you at this moment, but this word captures it all. I am simply astonished. Why? Because they're deserting the gospel. Yes, they believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, they believe that Jesus died on the cross, but some in the churches of Galatia, Jews in particular, they are teaching, they are affirming that if you really want to be justified in God's sight, if you really want to be saved, faith in Christ is not enough. You must be circumcised. 
You must practice certain ceremonial washings. You must practice and follow certain dietary laws. You must, in essence, observe the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be justified in the sight of God, you must devote yourself to all these things. And the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul does not teach that. We're suggesting to you that the Apostle Paul first received the gospel from the other apostles, but he has corrupted it. And all he preaches is the sole sufficiency of Christ. Christ is not enough. You must do more. You must add more to be certain of your justification in the sight of God. And so Paul's gospel, it is distorted. And Paul's apostolic authority, we are calling it into question. And so Paul takes pen, I guess it wasn't a pen, what was it in those days? Some sort of feather quill dipped in ink. And he writes quickly this letter to the churches of Galatia and he tells them, I am downright astonished. And in his introduction, which we have just read, he hits the two main issues head on. You question my apostolic authority, look at what he says. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why does he insert the resurrection here? I think his point is simply this. My fellow apostles, when were they called? When were they appointed? Oh, Christ called them and appointed them during the time of his humiliation here on earth. Not so with me. When did he call me? It was during his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. When he appeared to me on the road to Damascus, saved me, commissioned me, called me, and appointed me as an apostle. This idea, those among you are, who are in some way insinuating and suggesting that I am a lesser apostle or not an apostle at all, let me state it unequivocally unapologetically, right at the outset, I am an apostle appointed by Christ himself. And he'll go on to argue that, will he not, in the first two chapters. Authority. The issue is authority. Who speaks for God? And then he addresses the second issue, their repudiation of the sole sufficiency of Christ. And he does so beginning in verse 3. And this will be his great theme in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Grace to you. And peace, so how, how do grace and peace come to us? Well, they come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now notice his description of Christ, whereby he emphasizes again, key phrase, Christ's sole sufficiency, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ's sole sufficiency, I want us to notice, pay careful attention to four details in verses 4 and 5. Four details. Here is the first. Christ gave himself. 
That's not very imaginative, is it? I'm simply quoting the Apostle Paul, verse 4, who gave himself. Christ gave himself. He gave himself, it's true, by virtue of the incarnation, right? He emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant, and he walked among men, right? He gave himself in the incarnation. He gave himself by subjecting to human authorities, the rulers of his day, Joseph and Mary. He gave himself by coming and living in a fallen world, subject to the curse. He gave himself in his teaching and preaching ministry as he traveled by on foot, covering countless miles, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Oh, he gave himself as he healed the sick, cast out the demons, raised the dead. But far eclipsing all of these, and what the Apostle Paul has primarily in view is this. Christ gave himself upon Calvary's cross. Greg Gilbert writes, shredded flesh against unforgiving wood, Iron stakes pounded through bone and nerves, joints wrenched out of socket by the sheer weight of the body, public humiliation before the eyes of family, friends, and the world. That was the death of the cross. As the Lord Jesus hung, suspended between heaven and earth. He never uttered sobs of self-pity. He never hurled insults and accusations. He never claimed his rights. He never promoted his interests. He gave himself for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross despising the shame. Have you got that? That's detail number one. Christ gave himself. Here's detail number two. Paul says there in the fourth verse, Christ gave himself for our sins. That is extremely difficult for our society to understand today. That is unbelievably difficult for your average Canadian to wrap his or her mind around. This idea, Christ gave himself for our sins. Why? Because our, the average Canadian has absolutely no category for this word sins. Has no clue as to what that means. There are various reasons for that. I think one of the chief reasons is this. We live in a postmodern era, don't we? We live in postmodern times. We live in a very postmodern society, which means what? We have rejected all notions of absolute truth. Because we are a secular society, a secular society that's imbibed naturalism, a naturalistic or materialistic worldview, we have relegated God to the periphery and made him absolutely irrelevant. Well, in so doing, what are we left with? Simply left with the individual. Therefore, when it comes to determining the difference between right and wrong, we do not consult God. 
We do not consult any absolute standard. This decision, what is white, right, what is wrong, is left with whom? The individual. You decide what is right and wrong. And you make that decision, and this is what is so deplorable about Canadian society today, and we're seeing the ill effects, you make that decision based upon your feelings. Whatever you feel is right for you. Whatever you feel is good for you is right. Whatever you feel isn't good for you is wrong. And as long as we aren't doing anything that hurts anyone else, we can blissfully go through life basically doing as we please. Any deviant behavior, we still have a very small category for that, the Taliban. How else do we explain them? Any deviant behavior or anything really bad in our society, well, we have two explanations for that. The first is the nurture argument. And what is the nurture argument? Well, your social environment, your sociological context, hence the plethora of behavioral sciences in our day whereby we dismiss all human behavior, blaming everyone but the individual. The cause is sociological, and therefore the remedy is sociological. Or we account for human deviant human behavior on the basis of biology. That something's wrong with your system, your wiring. And the remedy, therefore, is what? Well, if the problem is biological, the remedy is biological. Here's a pill. Send you on your merry way, and this will somehow help resolve it. What our society and many of us miss in our day is simply this. There is another category, and the category is relational our relationship with God. And the Bible tells us that our relationship with God is broken. And because our relationship with God is broken, there is a threefold result. Three words used in the Bible. You'll find them, for example, together in Psalm 32. You'll find them together again in Romans chapter 4, where Paul cites from Psalm 32. The first word is this, trespass or transgression. I think most of us know what that means, right? What a transgression is or what a trespass is. Uh, hunting season is just a month or two away. And if you're driving down some of the rural roads in Waterloo region or wherever and you see some trucks stopped and guys are off in the bush hunting, in other places you might see these signs and they will be posted and what will they declare? No trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted. What does that mean? That we have defined limits here. We have defined boundaries. If you cross those boundaries, you are guilty of trespassing. You are guilty of transgressing. God has boundaries. God has laws. God has commands. Thou shalt not murder, for example. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. All of these commandments, the will of God summed up in the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every failure to do that is a trespass. It is a transgression whereby we have violated the law of God. But there's a second word in Scripture, and it is the word sin. The word sin means to fall short of a goal. And so if we were in a gym 
full-size basketball court. And we took one of those youngsters who was out here earlier, say a three-year-old little fellow, and we took him out there to the basketball court and we stood him at the foul line and handed him a full-size basketball and encouraged him to sink a basket. No matter how many times he tries to do it, he will never be able to sink a basket. It will always what? Fall short, fall short, fall short. That is sin. We fall short of the glory of God. God's standard, His requirements of us is absolute perfection. We are to be holy as He is holy. As I stated a few moments ago, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't come anywhere near that because we have a relational problem. And that problem is sin whereby we fall so far short of God's standard. But there's a third term there in Psalm 32 and Romans 4. It's found throughout Scripture, and it's this. It's usually translated in our English Bibles as iniquity. What is iniquity? It is the inclination of the heart. That word is telling us that we have a default position. Remember that? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. How many of you as old as me? You can knock those things over and they pop right back up, right? You can kick them halfway across the living room. It didn't matter. They would just pop right back up. A default position. As humans, we have a default position. And that default position is self-love. We are lovers of self, not lovers of God. This is iniquity. Some of you may play bowls, lawn bowling. I won't ask for a show of hands. I'm sure we all know what it is. There must be a green somewhere here in Guelph. And on a warm summer evening, there they are all dressed in white playing the lawn bowling. And I played it once in Scotland years ago. Pretty simple game. You have this white ball. It's a jack. You throw it down to the other end of the lawn. And then each player has a certain number of designated bowls, these black balls, bowls. And you throw them, and the idea is to get yours as close to the white jack as possible. The trick is this. Those bowls are weighted. And so weights have been inserted on a certain side of that bowl. And whichever side the weight is on, the bowl will curve. It will bend. Try as hard as you like. You cannot stop it from bending. It is inclined. It's called bias. The bowl has a bias. It will always bend in the direction in which it is weighted. That's us. We always bend in a certain direction. We are inclined a certain way. The Bible also calls this flesh. And I know this isn't very palatable. I know this isn't very encouraging. Wait, the good news is coming. And I know many people in our day simply do not want to hear this. But there is no good news before the bad news. There is no light at the end of the tunnel unless we are perfectly clear on this. We are, the Bible tells us, and you can pick a fight with me later in the parking lot if you like. If I don't show up, just start without me. But here's the problem. We are lovers of self and haters of God by nature, by birth. That's who we are. Iniquity. And from that iniquity, sin, we fall short of God's standard. So far short. And because we fall so far short, transgressions, trespasses, are you tracking with me? I pray you are. 
because here's the good news. Christ gave himself for our sins. All of it. The transgressions, the sin, and the iniquity imputed to him upon Calvary's cross. And there upon Calvary's cross, he willingly, consciously, purposefully, and joyfully gave himself for our sins, bearing the judgment of God as he became a curse for us. That is the second detail, my friends. Here is the third. Christ gave himself to deliver us. Again, right there in the fourth verse, I'm just extracting it out of the text. Christ gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. The word delivered, it's a little stronger than that. It means to rescue. He rescued. He delivered. I delivered a package. Doesn't really get to the essence of it, does it? But rescue, oh, that resonates. Because when we hear the word rescue, what do we associate with being rescued? Danger. There, there's, there's a problem. There, there's a threat. There's peril on the horizon. But Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us, to rescue us from the present evil age. You see, there are two ages in the Bible. If you want to understand human history, you need to grasp this. There are two ages. There is the present age. It began when? At the fall. And it continues when? Until Christ's second coming. That is the present age. This world, this universe, this cosmos languishing under the curse whereby all of creation groans under the weight and the burden of sin. The present age. But there is the age to come. When did it begin? Christ's first advent. He inaugurated it. At his second advent, he will consummate it. The present age will completely pass away and all we will be left with is the age to come. Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Because you see, it is an age that stands condemned. It is an age that lingers and languishes under the curse and under condemnation. And when the Lord Jesus Christ freely offered himself upon Calvary's cross and the wrath of God mixed with the love of God poured out upon Christ, he secured our rescue, our deliverance from the judgment of God. Here's a fourth detail I want us to notice again straight out of the text. Christ gave himself according to the will, according to the will of our God and Father. Meaning what? It was a plan foreordained and predetermined before the ages began. And in the fullness of time, Paul is going to declare later in chapter 4, verse 4, he's going to say, when the fullness of time, 
When the right moment arrived, that moment predetermined in the mind of God, the decrees of God brought into full fruition. When the fullness of time had come, the right moment, the precise moment, the exact moment, what did God do? He sent forth His Son. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, the Incarnation. Born under the law, counted, cursed on our behalf to redeem, to deliver, to rescue those who were languishing under the law, that is, under its curse. The eternal plan of God. Oh, the revelation of the eternal wisdom of God. And it is all, says the Apostle Paul in verse 5, it is all serving God. What purpose? To whom be the glory? Forever and ever. Amen. Did you get the four details, friends? Let me just repeat them quickly. Christ gave himself. Christ gave himself for our sins. Christ gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. Oh, and Christ gave himself according to the will of our God and Father. Now, what is the question each of us is pondering this day? I hope you haven't forgotten already. What was the question I began with? Is the gospel the main thing in your life? Is the gospel the main thing in my life? Is it the gospel that makes me tick? Is it the gospel that occupies my, my, my thinking and frames my thought patterns? Is it the gospel that determines my, my habits and my practices? Is it the gospel that colors my language? Is it the gospel that shapes my emotions and my desires and my longings? Is it the gospel that stands at the center of my life, navigating, influencing, determining the trajectory and the course of life? Is the gospel the main thing in your life? I actually want to direct that question to six individuals, okay? And as I look around, I love being able to do this because I don't know any of you. And no one can sit there thinking to himself, herself, oh, he's speaking to me. I most certainly am not necessarily speaking to you because I do not know anyone here this day. But I, I, I am hazarding a very informed guess that these six individuals are present. Six individuals. And I want to direct this question. Is the gospel the main thing in your life to these six groups? Okay. The first group. I want to ask the unbeliever. Maybe here right now. Maybe watching at home. This gets posted, I'm guessing, on the internet, maybe watching three years from now. Who knows, by God's grace and God's good providence, right? But some believer watching now, present now, in the future, is the gospel the main thing in your life? The obvious answer, and, and I assume you would admit this, is what? No. And my response to you as a fellow man is this. It ought to be. It should be. It must be. Later in this epistle, let me just turn there. No need for you to go there. But later in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to state, it's around verse 19, 
The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And we could fill in any number of things in that threefold category, immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, which is what? Simply to love anything more than God. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Notice what Paul goes on to say, I, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I wasn't going to go there, but I am going to go there. No need to turn there. But back in Romans 1, he, he says something similar. And I'm not sure we pay enough attention to these texts in our day. He says there, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Judgment is coming. I, I don't know how else to state it. If the Bible makes anything clear, it makes that clear. There is a day of judgment. A day marked, appointed by God Himself when we will all stand before Him, we will all give an account, and God will judge the secrets of men. And the sentence, time after time after time, will be what? Guilty. And being found guilty, the sentence, the verdict, what? Condemned. On that day, you know what my hope is? My only hope, my only confidence on that day, that judgment day, it isn't anything I've ever done. It isn't anything I've refrained from doing. It isn't the life I've lived or the life I'm planning to live. On that judgment day, do you know what my only hope and confidence will be as I stand before God's judgment throne? It will be to look to the Lord Jesus and simply utter these words. I'm with him. I'm with him. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so for that one unbeliever, young, old, man, woman, boy, girl, whatever the case may be. You do not need to fill any conditions. You do not need to get your act together. You need to simply look away from yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
One of the old theologians put it as follows. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. That's great right there. Upon a life I did not live. It's Christ's life. Upon a death I did not die. It's Christ's death. Upon Him, looking to Him and receiving Him through faith. Upon Him and Him alone, I stake my whole eternity. That's the first individual. Is the gospel at the center of your life? Here's a second individual who needs to hear this question and answer it. Is the gospel the most important thing in your life? And here I'm thinking of the believer. And this might very well pertain to someone here this day. I'm thinking of that individual, a believer, a Christian. Short time, long time. But you're struggling. I mean, you are struggling. And your struggle is with sin. Uh, you've been struggling with a spirit of bitterness. Um, anger welling up inside you. You've been uh, wrestling with impurity, pornography, something like that. Uh, anger has got the better of you of late more than you care to admit. And uh, you are wrestling with sin. Is the gospel the main thing in your life? Oh, friend, I would encourage you, I would plead with you to fix your gaze yet again upon the sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And remember that if we confess our sins, what is he? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the old hymns put it as follows, and if this, if this is you, you listen carefully to this text. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. You've been in the muck and the mire for longer than you care to remember, and you are wrestling with sin you feel like a bone out of joint. It was all you could do to drag yourself here today. You've been distancing yourself from other believers. Spirit of bitterness and hardness of heart has settled. Is the gospel the main thing in your life? It most certainly is not. And friend, I plead with you, as a fellow believer in Christ, you must look again with fresh eyes to the soul sufficiency of Jesus Christ and run and hide yourself in the shadow of the cross. Here's the third person I want to speak with. That individual who is struggling with assurance. That individual who feels like the psalmist in Psalm 119. He describes himself. It's a bit lost with us given the day and age in which we live. But I think it resonates. I think we can get it. He describes himself as a wineskin that has been left hanging too close to the fire. 
And what has happened to that wineskin? It is all dried out, and it is charred and blackened and cracked, and it is now good for nothing but to be thrown out. That's how the psalmist describes himself as he laments in the presence of the Lord, and life has him down, if you like, and he's face, he's face first in the dirt, and he's gasping for breath, he's gasping for life, there is no light at the end of the tunnel, and his cry is, how long, O Lord? Oh, my friend, the sole sufficiency of Christ, the gospel, and making the gospel the main thing in our lives, and remembering what Paul is going to say later in the very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 20, the life I now live in the flesh. Listen carefully. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, there is strength in the midst of the storm. There is confidence when faith is wavering. There is a strong tower, a mighty fortress, a strong, unmoving anchor. When life's circumstances have the better of us, assurance is waning that we look again to the gospel with fresh eyes and see the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself so willingly up for us. Here's the fourth person I want to speak with, that individual perhaps who has suffered loss recently or maybe even a long time ago, and yet the pain is still acute. The sorrow still overwhelms at times, and the sleepless night still as a reality as you come to grips with that loss. As you wrestle with that sorrow, as you wrestle with that grief, oh, to remember that Christ gave himself for our sins upon Calvary's cross to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And on that basis and that basis alone, the Apostle Paul can command us in Philippians chapter 4, isn't it? Verse 3, verse 4, somewhere in there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, as if we need to hear it a second time, I say, rejoice. Where was Paul when he wrote his epistle to the Philippians? He's in prison in Rome. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice, not to deny the harsh realities of life, not to deny that sorrow and grief can enter in and overwhelm like a flood, but to affirm and to celebrate that even in the midst of such trials, we have great cause for rejoicing. Great cause. I mean, you think of Philippi. Stick with Philippi. Is it Acts 15, Acts 16? Paul's now on his second missionary journey. He's with Silas. They enter into the city of Philippi where he wrote that epistle. Just bear with me for a moment. It, it, this is something that's always fascinated me. He's in the city of Philippi. Lydia's converted. Do you remember that? And then, then uh, there's this, this episode with his little girl who's demon-possessed. She's a fortune teller. Paul casts the demon out of her. Her owners realize they've, they've, they've lost a rather lucrative 
right? Arrangement. They haul Paul and Silas before the authorities. They're beaten with rods. They're beaten to a pulp, if you like. They're thrown into the prison cell in Philippi. They're in the stocks and they're in the chains. And we read there in Acts 16, it's remarkable. In the middle of the night, what do Paul and Silas do? They begin to sing psalms and offer praises to the Lord. Here's, here's the question I've always wrestled with. Do you think they felt like it? you think they really felt like it? I don't think they felt like it. They turned their minds intentionally, even in the midst of their awful, deplorable, heart-wrenching circumstances. They turned themselves intentionally yet again to the gospel and to the soul sufficiency of Christ. And there, even in the midst of their trial and their tribulation, they found more than enough reason to rejoice and give thanks. Let me quickly speak to a fifth individual. You're suffering, you're wrestling with some sort of relational breakdown. It could be in the context of a marriage. It could be with a sibling. It could be with a cousin. It could be with a longtime friend. It could be with a neighbor. But this relationship is unraveling before your eyes. And where at one time there was understanding, mutual understanding, mutual respect, it has now been replaced with open hostility. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 13, isn't it, that insofar as it depends on you, insofar as it depends on you, you are to live at peace with all men. Insofar as it depends on us. Sometimes it's out of our hands, isn't it? Sometimes it's beyond our reach, beyond our grasp, beyond our influence, because it takes two, doesn't it? But insofar as it depends on us, we are to seek to live in peace with all men. And the only way to do that is the gospel. It is only when the gospel is front and center do we have the frame of mind and attitude of heart to seek to heal those broken relationships. It's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, love one another. You remember that command? But it's just not suspended in air. What does he go on to say? Love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Oh, do all that is within you to heal those relationships. And it's only possible as we live in the light of the gospel. It's only possible when the gospel is the main thing. It is only possible when the soul sufficiency of Christ has a grip on us to such an extent that it shapes our thoughts. It shapes our emotions, our attitudes, our perspectives, and our words. Because you see, at the root of every relational breakdown, at the root of every quarrel, is what James tells us, is what? There's only one reason, selfish ambition. And the only thing that will mortify and kill selfish ambition is what? The selflessness of the Lord Jesus Christ as so wonderfully displayed upon Calvary's cross. We've come now to the sixth individual. A few words to that person, that man, that woman for whom life has become simply overwhelming. Simply overwhelming. Is the gospel 
the main thing. You are sick of COVID in the past year and a half, and it has wreaked havoc on you on some level. Circumstances of life, current events as you look around the globe, you go on social media, that was your first mistake, you shouldn't, but you go on social media and you're there for half an hour and just feel sick, just sick, physically sick at the end of it. And life has just got you down and you just feel so overwhelmed. Oh, my friend, is the gospel the main thing? What does Paul say to the Romans? Chapter 8, right at the end, verse 38, verse 39. Nothing. Nothing. What? Let me hear you say it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know it to be so. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, God has made the greatest attestation, declaration of love that is possible in that while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Oh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray now that by your Spirit you might take these thoughts as gleaned from your Word and apply them according to the need of each one gathered here this day. May it be for our good and may it be for the furtherance of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, we do ask it. Amen.